us. <laughs> Muy bien, gracias. Today we're talking to Kristen Merrick, also known as the girl who saves money. Kristen is a CFA who loves to use her financial savviness to empower individuals, especially women, mm-hmm. families, small businesses, and not-for-profit organizations in the challenging world of finance. We feel that financial wellness is a huge part of our overall lives, mm-hmm. and it was definitely something that we wanted to weave into Wanna Vibe from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, as women, I feel like this is a topic that's wildly under-discussed. Absolutely. So we asked Kristen to come on and talk about some of the basics to get our finances in check. I actually met Kristen at Girl Boss Rally like a year and a half ago, and... Um, I thought that her approach was so different and so relatable. And yeah. usually like finance talk is like another Boring. language. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to talk about everything from savings to investing to retiring. So get your notebook out, start power taking some notes because we're about to get our learn on today. Enjoy. Wanna Vibe is a podcast and resource speaking simply about all things wellness. We want to break down each topic and start from the beginning, avoiding the assumption that everyone knows the building blocks to a particular subject. The way we see it, wellness is all-encompassing of each aspect that affects our everyday lives. In addition to our faves like fitness and nutrition, this could mean anything from relationships to careers, finances, spirituality, and so much more. We are Abby and Issa. Wanna Vibe? I know it's like finally I got it right. All right, so welcome, Kristen Merrick, CFA Extraordinaire. Um, she's going to help us get money healthy today. This is I love money so much, <laughs> but I this is like right up my alley. I'm so ready to talk about budgeting and saving because like I'm in the thick of it right now, and I'm like, how do I? do better. Okay. Calm down. Sorry. Um, Kristen, would you just highlight your credentials and all of that good stuff for us? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me, ladies. Um, Thank you for joining us. I am, uh, let's say I'm a daughter of a financial advisor. So that kind of started my, my money path um, at a very early age. I uh, was a business major at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Uh, I was uh, came out of Carolina and immediately started working uh, on a trading floor at Bank of America. I wow. working for an exchange desk, which was uh, where I spent the next like 15 years of my career, not at Bank of America, but on the foreign exchange, emerging markets, desk at various large banks. Um, I spent my last six years of that career at Morgan Stanley, uh, covering mostly like hedge funds and asset managers, giving them advice, executing uh, their trades. It was a really, uh, <laughs> it was a crazy job. It Sounds was intense. Yeah. Yeah. Super intense, super fun. Uh, like, su- like such a fun job for, for a young single gal, not such a fun job for a married working mom mm-hmm. of boys. And so kind How of- boys? I'm sorry. Two. Nice. And so I decided uh, right around, uh, right after the birth of my son, Charlie, in 2014, early 15, that I needed to make a change. Uh, So I actually, um, I asked them to package me. I left Morgan Stanley in March of of, of 15, took a break. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought it was going to be a longer break. (laughs) (laughs) When it's in your blood, it's in your blood, you know? in my blood, not to, not to not work. Um, so my dad actually approached me at that time and said, you know, why don't, why don't you come work with me? Uh, I could, I could use some help growing the business and I think this would be a good fit for you. And, and he actually pitched me at like a cute lunch with a glass oh. of coffee. Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
He's a dad, of course. Yeah, I was like still like breastfeeding and like postpartum, but <laughs> I was like, oh, lunch, lunch and wine. This sounds delicious. Um, and so he kind of sold me, and I I decided to do it. So I started in uh, September of 2015 working with him. His uh, his second employee um, after his assistant who'd been with him for many many years and uh, started building my own business in 2015. I'm just looking for initially looking for any client who would hire me. Uh, that's kind of the way that goes when you're starting a business, but um, kind of curating and cultivating a really interesting client base since then, which is made up of predominantly women. Mm-hmm. Uh, professional women who are, you know, maybe they're entrepreneurs or corporate executives. Um, a lot of them are, you know, married and have, and have children of their own and are maybe either in charge of making the financial decisions or, um, a work with their husband kind of as a team to, mm-hmm. to make team effort decisions. Uh, so it's a really interesting job. It's a lot of, uh, there's obviously a lot of different components to it. There's the investment part, which Mm -hmm. is probably the easiest part for me just because of my, my prior experience. Uh, there's the financial planning part, which is the combination of kind of goals, creating goals and strategy, but also making sure that I, as the advisor and giving my clients guidance on what they need, which maybe in some cases they don't even realize they need. Mm -hmm. For example, that's like life insurance or do you have a will or Right. Properly planning for college for your children. Are you properly planning for retirement for yourself? Um, and then there's the side job of the therapy, which yeah, I was gonna say it's a lot of emotional support. I'm sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so much therapy, which which is probably the biggest surprise of the job. Um, I mean, I always kind of had a little bit of a therapy role, just wearing a sales hat in general. Right. I think in relationships, if your business is sales and you're in relationships, you always kind of have that side hustle of therapy, mm-hmm. but this is a whole different level, especially when you have couples, um, or if you have people who are dealing with some kind of money weirdness, uh, they, you know, sometimes they have to kind of get past their, their own money weirdness in order to achieve their goals. So there's like a lot of, a lot of that goes on. Yeah. Too. I just feel like there's like a lot of arrows pointing at me, like while you're talking like money right. weirdness, I'm like, like real weird. Well, I think that actually a lot of people are really weird about money, which is one of the main reasons that we've wanted to do like a series of financial wellness episodes, because especially as women, we are kind of like hardwired not to talk about money yeah, um, and not to really know about money. I mean, if you look at like our parents' generations, like women didn't really handle money. And so how are women that didn't handle money supposed to teach their daughters about money? It's exactly. not a topic that's taught in school. So it's like, where do you learn it? Like you either fucking hit the streets and figure it out or like we all talk and share information. So, mm-hmm. um, but I just want to take a quick step back because you said your dad was a CFA and money's like in your blood. So I just want to know sort of like what that, how that unfolded as like a child, like young adult, whatever, were you like hustling lemonade on the street corner and then like investing your $2 and 50 cents? Like, what does that look like? <laughs> so I just, first of all, I want to point out that this is a very, um, astute question. Uh, I think it speaks to your own financial literacy that you're even talking about this because um, most people don't even realize that they have a money story, right? Mm. So once you realize you have a money story, you kind of have to dig deep and figure out what that money story is and why it's important to talk about it. Because once you can understand your own, import, your own 
money story, then you can kind of start to navigate the weirdness that you've created for yourself, right? right. Uh, so I think this is a really good question. It's one of my favorite questions. It's one of the things that I try to do with all my clients kind of from the get-go is give me the background. Yeah. Um, so my background is that I was uh, the firstborn of a large family. I'm the oldest of five kids. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and, and my parents were relatively young when they had me. They were just in their early 20s. Um, my, my dad has got a great story of the Marine. He, um, my mom, my parents were, this is actually, this is super cute. It has nothing to do with real, like, Tell us everything. it's a sweet story. They were, they were high school sweethearts. And then, uh, dad went to college, mom went to work, um, and they stayed together all through college. And then they, uh, dad got commissioned to the Marine Corps and then they were, um, moved a bit around and they moved out to California, which is where I was born. I was born at Camp Pendleton out there. And then, upon dad's um, service being done, they moved back to the East Coast and moved back to New Jersey, which is where they were both grew up and kind of took a, a few years to um, embark on what became a feverish um, child making. <laughs> Childbearing years. Oh boy. Um, but they took a little bit, <laughs> mostly because I don't think they had money. Um, and so I was an only child for about four and a half years and so it was just like me and my parents a lot. My mom still continues to be a, um, just a very kind of like chatty, shares all of her information type thing. So mom was always talking to me about things that were just completely inappropriate to talk to your four-year-old about, like watching <laughs> soap operas together. I was a huge All My Children fan at the age of four. Oh my gosh, um, amazing. I mean insane. Like I was like really into the plots. Um, <laughs> did kill Zach mom. Who did? And it was a strange um, life, but you know, I would, I would ask her, you know, how babies were born. And then she would just straight up tell me and wait, <laughs> then they kind of started having babies. Um, and they had, I know everything. <laughs> cool. Um, so they had a bunch of babies, um, between in the, in the mid eighties. And, um, throughout that time, mom continued to share with me, um, kind of the financial struggles that took place when you have all these children. So at a very early age, I was like, great. So dad makes money based on the stock market. And so if the stock market goes up, we make money. And if the stock market goes down, we lose money. Um, so clearly I want the stock market to go up. And then in the mid eighties, like late eighties, the stock market crashed. And I was like, oh, well, this is the end of us. And it was like a really dark period for our family. It was just, we struggled financially. And it was also at the same time that I became incredibly materialistic. And, <laughs> and so I was like, well, how do I, I want to- How old were you? Uh, I was in the fourth grade. Oh, okay. Uh, and That's all when you start to give a shit what other people think, I feel like. Totally. And I, and I, and I actually, we grew up in this really pretty little neighborhood in, in Wayne, New Jersey that um, was a little, I think probably didn't use the word at the time, but it was a little bougie. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of people kind of keeping up with the Joneses around us. And all my friends had like really nice clothes and coolest toys. And my best friend's mom drove a Mercedes and I just, I just wanted her Mercedes. I, I, I realized the fourth year grader. You're like, bitch, I'm 10. I want a Mercedes. <laughs> but I was always like, when are we getting Mercedes? How do I get there? <laughs> yeah. How do I, I get the Mercedes? And so that was a really 
kind of interesting part of my life where I was just always like, we had a shop at Bradley's, but everybody else was going to Nordstrom's. And so it was, it was interesting. And then in, in, then my businesses started. Yeah. I sold friendship bracelets uh, on the playground in fifth grade. Yes. And then in fifth grade, my biggest business was that I had a friend who would stay with me here. He would, the, the Simpsons were really big in fifth grade. They were just, just out of the gate. And he would trace Simpsons on paper. Uh-huh. And he would sell them. Whoa. I was in charge of the sales. So I was like his manager. Oh, oh my, God. my God. That was my side biz in fifth grade. So you um, got like a cut or... I got a cut. Oh yeah. Oh my God. That's yeah. awesome. So, you are yeah, an so entrepreneur. Like started super early. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was never ever like get your Mercedes. I was never the artist. I did not get the Mercedes. By the way, my father now drives a Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> Irony in its finest. I don't drive a Mercedes. <laughs> I, had, I had a choice at one point to drive a Mercedes. And I was like, no, yeah, I can do it. Yeah. Um, you're like, mm, $700 a month. No. Yeah. I'm good. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of how things went uh, very early on. I got it. I got my first official job when I was 14 at Harmon Cosmetic Health and Beauty Aids. I was okay. a, I was a clerk at um, Register One. For all the youngins, Harmon is the Ulta of the 90s. Yeah, Harman's still out. I Harman's Harman. still there. Yeah, yeah, but I feel like no. I feel like that's when your Bed Bath yeah. and Beyond coupons. Yeah. And you get 20% off. I know. Please so they mark everything up. It's, a, it's all a ploy. By Bed Bath and Beyond, right? Um, but they were, it was great. I remember the smell distinctly. Um, <laughs> and there was a jingle, which of course I will not sing, but it was, um, it was a good little job. And that was kind of where I started. I always had a job in high school. Um, towards the end of high school, I had, when I could drive, I had multiple jobs. Uh, I think when I graduated from high school, the summer after high school, I had three jobs. Um, I just liked money. And I just knew that there was a direct correlation between working and money. And that was truly the answer for me. And, and, and it also became kind of um, a path for me to understand that like, oh, I, I like money and I have to figure out how to wait more ways to make it. So I purposely um, became a business major. Mm-hmm. I knew that I could come out of college making more money. Um, when I was a, I think a senior in high school, I'm sorry, a senior in college is when I decided that I was going to go into um, finance and most likely into sales and trading because I knew that I could work um, normal-ish hours, but still make um, a good amount of money coming out of mm-hmm. college. And so I did that. I, I interviewed a bunch of places in my senior year. Bank of America offered me a job while I was a senior in college. Wow. And I graduated and went right to work. And my first year of college, I made $55,000 in salary. I had a Whoa, that's, that's really great. That's a lot. Right out of college. Signing bonus. And I got a $20,000 bonus at the end of the year. And holy shit. I thought I was rich as fuck. I, I mean... Would- <laughs> Fair enough, because at 22 years old, you are rich as fuck with 75 or whatever thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah, but I was like, um, I'm so irresponsible. Like, I, mean, I, like, I, think, about that? I think about that all the How time. How much money would I have if, if I had just started saving sooner? I've actually I stopped thinking about that because it's pointless. So I think about this a lot pointless. because of like budgeting and stuff. A, um, I just remember, so this is a quick side note. My mother always said to me like, as a woman, have your own money. Mm-hmm. Don't 
advice. rely on a man. Don't only have a joint account. You can have a joint account, have your own shit on the side. Mm-hmm. So I've always thought about that. I also work with my father. So oh, it's we like, have a work group. Uh, I'm sorry. We should have a support group. <laughs> should. I just have, so we have just gotten over this. We've been working together for five years now. And he signed half the business to me. So he's like slowly relinquishing control, even though it's just on paper. It's like not in real life, like the control. <laughs> but, and I just said, I'm like, we've only just gotten past the point where like every day was, uh, there was a possibility of a murder suicide mm. because like now we're finally like getting each other. Um, however, off of that, I live with my boyfriend now and we are working on budgeting. So we intend to like get married at some point. So we have like, we call it the stuck fund because we're stuck to, we're stuck together. So we put away for that. And then we have the kitty, which is like fun money. Um, We have a wedding fund, which is not our wedding. It's for other people's weddings. Good. So even like we got, um, I just don't have friends. So I don't go to weddings. We have too many friends and we go to too many weddings. And it's like, like this past year, I was in two of my best friend's weddings and I'm like, we're not going to have, like you need to have, I like to give like a little bit of a generous gift to the people that I like love the most mm-hmm. or especially if I'm in your wedding. So I'm like, I'm not pulling out of pocket and paying for a hotel, spending a thousand dollars for the day out of pocket that week. Let's figure it out yeah, and do that. However, so now like we're trying to save for not only like a home out cause we live in an apartment. So we're saving for a home, saving for a future wedding, saving for all this shit. How do you, I just feel like sometimes let's break down budgeting. That's what I want. And figure out like uh, generally cuz obviously it's going to be different for everybody. everybody case case. But generally speaking like how do you determine how much uh funds to allocate for fixed expenses, fun expenses, savings, etc. Right. So the way I always say you have to start is you have to look at kind of the two sides of the equation, right? The cash in versus the cash out. Okay. So you have to look at the cash in because the cash in should make a lot of determinations for the cash out. So, um, if you make, you know, if you net five grand a month, should you have a $3,500 per month apartment rental? Mm -hmm. You should not, right? right? So you kind of have to know, you have to live within your means and you have to make the decisions based on your, on what your cash in is. If you're unhappy with your cash in, then you either go need to go make more money. Yep right? Or you need to spend less, right? So it's, it's, you know, budgeting is, is one of these things that, uh, it's hard and it's really brutal to kind of face the music on your own budget. And truthfully, as an advisor, it's, it's not the most pleasant conversation just because it's not like nobody wants to hear that you should yeah, spend it's not sexy. It's right. not- you have to like call people out too, right? So like you write, the intimidating thing is writing it all out and being like, holy shit, I spend so much money on this that's not necessary. And then on your end, you're kind of like, do you really really need all these coffees every day? You just spent $50 on coffee this week. And I think that's right. I think, I think part of it is just being realistic. I just wrote a piece recently and I call it the lifestyle creep. It's the idea that um, you are constantly adjusting to how much money you're making. Right. Yeah. It's never enough. Exactly. So you make more, Ooh, I got a raise. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, where did my raise go? And it's because you're like in your back of your mind, you're like, I got a raise. I can buy this. I got a raise. I can go to dinner. I got, <laughs> so yeah. 
spent your raise because you've um, you've mentally allocated for it. So so part one is knowing what you're making. Part two is knowing what you're spending, and this is the ugly part. So there's a fixed cost, and there's a lot of times there's a fixed cost that you can't get around. Right? You have your rent or, yeah. or your mortgage. You have your car whatever costs that are associated with your car, you have your utilities and your phone bill, whatever. These are the things that no matter what you do each month, no matter how you know thoughtful you're trying to be each, each month about your spending, you still have these these bills. They don't go away. Should should like something like housing be like 30% of your income or something like that? Do you do you believe in following that kind of thing? Like let's just say you need to have a lifestyle revamp or maybe you're just getting your first apartment. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you're making $50,000 a year or whatever. So if you're making five grand a month, should you say, all right, well, I can spend $2,000 on an apartment. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's tricky, especially where we live because um, housing is so expensive. So this is a different, I would say in, in places where, you have these like housing crises basically here in the West coast and in certain areas of the country, you have to kind of, sometimes you have to just suck it up and spend more than you would Mm -hmm. want on housing because you need a place to live. So I think you have to constantly, I think that, I think where the trouble gets is that you can constantly say to yourself, well, I've been in this apartment for two years. It's fine, but I want something better. Let me go and spend an extra thousand dollars a month to upgrade. And you're like, in the end, is that the right move? Usually it's the upgrade. It's not the initial place to live, right? So, you know, you want to be spending as little as possible on your rent, but you also need a comfortable place, a safe, happy place to live. And and that's really important. Um, And so I think it really depends on how you live the rest of your life, right? Mm. If you the variable to spend money towards rent, then you have to kind of figure out other ways in your life. Yeah, that um, makes sense. That's like with me and John. So my boyfriend and I live in our apartment and our rent is good. Like, yeah, really good. Really good. But I was so dead set just for selfish reasons to like get out of there. So I'm like, fuck this place. Right. Like, and I was upset like a lot, like living there. And it was also difficult for me to transition from my parents' house to like an apartment that takes me three steps to get to each room. You know, so I'm like, oh my gosh. But now, even like just talking to you, I just feel like light bulbs are just like, yep, Mm -hmm. there it is. That's me. So that's a good segue into renting versus buying because we didn't even finish budgeting, I know. But do you think that sometimes it does make more sense to rent instead of buy? Even if you have your nest egg of money, like I bought our, we bought our house and I feel like I'm just constantly putting money into it. And I'm like, I miss renting so much when you could just call and it was somebody else's problem. Well, here's the thing that I think you forget when you're buying, when you own a home is that every month that mortgage payment creates more and more equity, right? So yes, you're putting money into the house because you need a new boiler or dishwasher or some nonsense that's the worst way to spend money. But at the same time, you're paying a mortgage each month, which is creating more and more ownership of the home, right? So you're building you're building equity in your home every single month that you're paying the mortgage. So I understand what you're saying because money, the houses, homes have a tendency to become money pits if you're not careful. Um, but at the same time, you are constantly increasing your wealth when you're making mortgage payments, right? So that's, that's the positive part of owning a home. 
What I see a lot of is people trying to buy homes when they can't afford them. See, that's like what I don't want to do. And it drives, like, that's why I'm like, we're going to stay in this apartment until we're in a comfortable place. I'll probably be 62 by the time I move out, but it's fine. Well, I think, you know, I see people all the time are like, well, I'm just going to put 10% down. I'm going to, hell no. No, don't do that. Like, you're not ready. If you're, if you're going to put 10% down, you're not ready to buy it. Don't force it. Don't force it because guess what? Like, you know, the way that, the way that works is if you only put 10% down, you have a higher mortgage and then you're not really paying as much as you would like towards prints. It's, it's really, you don't own as much of the home. If you only, yeah. put 10% down. if you only own 10% of the house, you know, you start to get yourself in a situation where maybe your mortgage is too high and then all of a sudden you can't afford it and then you have to sell it. But guess what? If you're selling it and you only own 10% of it, you're not even getting that much back. That was going to be my next question was like the break even point. Cause, because homes are so expensive here where we live, like you have to put a certain amount down and kind of stay there for a certain amount of time before it makes sense for you to have owned your home. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, listen, if you put 20% down, you own 20% of your home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're there for a year, two years, three years, as your mortgage payments go on and on, you own more and more of the home. Ideally, your home is also increasing in value. Um, what's been tricky is that I would say in certain areas, especially where we live because of things like tax reform and no longer being able to write off property taxes and or SALT, S-A-L-T, that the whole package has really become less um, exciting to people who have high, high tax brackets. It's been tricky to sell houses in these wealthier mm-hmm. right? So, um, whereas you used to be able to flip a house maybe in, in a month or two, you're seeing houses sit on the market longer. And this is what happened, you know, on a greater extent during the financial crisis is that you, homes are illiquid. And this mm-hmm. is kind of my, one of the big points of renting versus buying. And I think this is a really important thing to, to note. Um, when you're renting, you don't own the home. You also have a ton of freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bounce, right? Um, all of your wealth at that point, generally speaking, is going to be liquid to you. You can access it. When you own a home, you're putting 20% down you're putting work into the home, whatever, whatever money you're putting into it to, to enhance it and make it better, that money is illiquid to you. You can't mm-hmm. just sell button and get that money back in two days. Mm-hmm. So you have to always think about your home as a very specific type of asset, which is that it's an illiquid asset and that it could take potentially three, six, nine months to sell it. Um, in a market that's maybe a little more depressed, that it could take longer than that. And so this is not an easy, this is not a cash machine for you. This is something that you have to kind of put in its own bucket of illiquid assets versus some of your more liquid assets like your cash and your securities. So that's a big factor when thinking about renting versus buying. Depressing. I know. <laughs> it's like stressful, but it's something that we need to know so that we can like move forward and like have a plan of attack. Yeah. For the situation, you know, I think you should be buying a home when you can afford to buy a home. I think, you know, and I think a lot of people miss that. I think if you have, I always say you have to have the 20% to put down and then you have to have an extra piece of cash in order to do whatever enhancements that you want to do initially to the house or that you have to do to the house. Yeah. Right. Um, When you're fucking central air breaks, when you're in, we closed on the house. I hope she's listening. 
We close on the house and the woman we, that we bought the house from left us a note on the counter and it said, P.S., the oven doesn't really work. <gasps> what? What a troll. What a bitch. And you're like, oh, cool. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it was right off the bat. Like in Sex in the City, literally, she broke up with you on a post-it. She broke up with you on a post-it. And I was like, great. Brother, she still lives in town. So we see her. But um, <laughs> the point is that you always need to put money into a I house. I showed up at that bitch's house. Like, where is my, fi- I don't even know how much stoves cost, but like, where's my $500? Oh, <laughs> so that was it. But that, you know, you always need to put money into the house. You, have, you need the money for the down payment. You need money to move and, and all the things go along with that. You go to Bed Bath & Beyond, buy a new garbage can or whatever it is. Then you need your money to make your, your enhancements. And guess what else you need? You need money to live. So yeah. you yeah. this extra money in your checking accounts that you can pay your bills. And, um, and if you need to have an emergency, you can, you yeah, know. like a what if fund. So this is not just, okay, I'm going to buy a half million dollar house and I need a hundred grand to buy it, to put a down payment. In. No, this is, I'm going to buy a half million dollar house. And I actually probably need 175 grand, um, so that I can, I can make all of these moves and not feel right. like cash poor. Totally. Um, so I'm um, just to jump back to budgeting really quick. Do you, when you're working with a single versus a couple, do you attack budgeting differently or is it more or less the same? It's a good question, actually. Um, so it, it's, it has to be done differently a hundred percent differently because when you're a single, you are kind of, you know, you're on your own thing. You're doing your own thing. You're spending your money. You don't have that accountability partner. Right. Um, when you're a double, you do have the accountability partner. So doubles, um, generally go two ways, right? They're either both spending expenditures, um, they're either, or they're super frugal. Um, or they, generally speaking, they're, they have, j- more in line with the same spending patterns. The real trouble comes when you have like somebody who just loves to spend and someone who's horrified by it. That's mm. the- so that's like me and John now because I'm the one that spends more money. John was always just like really low key, and then now I find like he's he'll say like, "Oh, that was seventy five dollars. Oh, okay, no big deal." And I'm like, no, you're the reasonable one. Like, yeah, don't be, don't be like me, honey. <laughs> right, right. Keep us it's together. Tricky. It's tricky. You have to kind of know um, your spending, ha- your the part, your partner spending habits before you you merge. Um, and I'm always surprised by how little people talk about money before they merge. Um, yeah. That was like the first thing that I did when I moved in with John. We were like. What's our plan? What are we doing? And now I find myself reeling myself in because I want to save. So like where I used to just spend, it was like, I could just like throw $20 out the window and you, that's just how it works. It was like, here, everything, paper, whatever. And now I'm like, no, we're saying, you know, November, this is no November. We're saying no to everything. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, the one thing I want to say about the budgeting parts, we kind of talked about the fixed expenses. The variable expenses are the things that you can control and yeah. change from month to month, right? And you had kind of mentioned this earlier. There's like the coffee trap or the juice trap um, that, you know, we all kind of find ourselves falling into um, daily. And, and I think one of the biggest problems that kind of from a get real deep from a, like a society point of view is that the way that we've gone um, in the last few years is that 
so many of our transactions on a day-to-day basis have uh, completely gone transactionless. So for instance, you take an Uber, you don't pay the Uber driver, right? Right. You don't yeah. feel the money, like the cash. You get, in, you get dropped off mm-hmm. and you wait to buy. There's no transaction. Um, sometimes people go into Starbucks and use their, their app or whatever. There's no transaction. There's no exchange of money. Um, and this is happening more and more. Uh, and so you can go an entire day sometimes without even taking out your wallet, um, let alone paying some for something in cash, right? Right. Very few people even use cash anymore. So this is a really slippery slope. And if you have a tendency to already um, not be particularly thoughtful about your spending, then transactionless spending can be very, very dangerous for you. Yeah. And so this is what I do with a lot of clients is I have to, I actually make them give me their credit card statements and their bank statements and I will comb through and I will kind of, cre- I will show them trends uh, mm. that, that they have that they don't even realize they have because they haven't done this exercise. And I always say, go back three months and I want you to really dig deep. And there's always going to be a month where they have like a story. There's a, there's an anecdote. Oh, I went to LA that month. And I, yeah. I spent like me. Okay. But you still spent a <laughs> more money last month. Um, than then you, then you needed to. And that is kind of where that mysterious money is being spent. Mm-hmm. Well, they're spending, right. Cause it's kind of this idea that like you spend the money and it just evaporates into the ether. And then you're like, where did it go? And your mind is in. Your mind is like, oh, I didn't do any, I didn't spend any money and your checkbook is like, help, or your credit card, yeah. help. Um, so so you, the, the idea of being super thoughtful about your spending and, spe- and being, um, and tracking it is really important when you're budgeting because if you don't know where it's going, you can't stop the bleed, right? Yeah. And it sounds like a really basic concept. No, I'm like the most guilty of that. We went out to dinner last week and they, the girl, I was like, I'll just put it on my credit card and you guys can Venmo me. And she tries to give me cash. And I'm like, don't give me cash. I don't want the cash. I have a fucking $50 bill that's been sitting in my purse for like a year and a half because I never use cash. I'll take it. I found $100 in a purse that I haven't worn in a long ass time when I was in LA last week. And you're like, what is this? I was this? like, it was like cr- like old, you know, when like money gets old and it's like hard. Tw- 520s crumpled up. Like that, that, it's, it's a problem. Yeah, I think, I, you know what? I'm actually still a cash person. I always like have cash and I like to spend cash um, because you can control it. More. Yes, you can feel con- it's also much more meaningful when you hand somebody a $20 bill to pay for something. Totally. And as opposed to like, you know, the ATM card or the, your debit card where you're just like, you know, you know, think about when you run errands, you can go into like, the CVS and spend thirty two fifty, and then you can go to Starbucks and spend twelve dollars, and then you can go to the dry cleaner and spend eighty dollars, and all of a sudden you just spend one hundred and fifty dollars, oh, and yeah. and it doesn't feel like anything. But if you're spending cash that whole time, it actually feels a lot more real. Absolutely, yeah. So it's a little little hack for my. I like my even. Pen. I, I like even hack. seeing like uh, people that I've seen like on the internet. They'll do envelopes with specific like. I've seen that. That's a. That's a someone like there's a person that that's their thing. Yeah, like debt free. I I don't know who it is, but I feel like there's the name Ramsey in it, and like that's his like spiel is like Dave Ramsey. Yeah, doesn't he do the envelopes? He might. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not I, super I, familiar, I, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and basically they just kind of just a popular, It's a little bit of a personality type in order to do that. 
Um, yeah, definitely her personality type. You know what's interesting is so much of budgeting is based on your personality, right? So some people really like the apps that yeah. like tell them exactly what they're spending and they categorize it like Mint, right? Mint is a pretty popular yeah. um, budgeting app and you can kind of categorize everything. Some people like uh, almost like when you food journal, it's like they write it down on a piece That's of paper. That's me. I'm that person. Yeah. I like an Excel spreadsheet. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not a digital. Yeah. I'm not a digital. I'm all hand. Like my planner, my planner, I'm like, hold up, licking my finger, switching the page. Sharing a calendar with her is kind of a nightmare. Digitally, I can't do it. Um, and so if somebody, let's just say somebody is like living paycheck to paycheck mm-hmm. for, for whatever, um, how, like, obviously you want to start saving ASAP, right? Like you always want to have savings. Like what if you lose your job or what if you, I don't know, get hit by a car, like whatever. But like, what if you are kind of like living just inside your means? Right. Do you, do you suggest to people like that, like go drive for Uber and save all your Uber money or like, you know what I mean? When you're saying paycheck, paycheck to paycheck, you're saying no savings, paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. I mean, like you're making just enough money. Like there are some people that teachers, for example, wildly underpaid and a lot of them have side jobs and stuff like that but like you're making just enough money to pay your rent eat drive whatever you know what i mean because i would say that i live paycheck to paycheck but i have a good savings does that is that but not you the put same way in your savings that's, that's not what the i'm same saying thing. okay okay that's what i'm asking yeah no it's basically the idea that you're just you're making exactly like what you're yeah Got it. okay what you're spending each month yeah and this is a tough one, right? Because I can kind of, I, when I, I kind of, I'm always trying to, I always try to be careful to check my, myself when I embark on this conversation. Cause I don't want to sound like a privileged brat, right? Yeah. Like you say, everyone should be able to save, but savings really hard. Yeah. So, especially if you're young, especially, especially if you're young or if you have, you know, exceptionally high amounts of student debt or other kinds of debt, or if you just, don't make enough money to your point teachers, right? There's a lot of teachers in this world who work incredibly hard and aren't making enough money. And that's just, well, kind of just messed up. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's really, like I said, there's the budgeting part, which is kind of the, I sound just like a nag when I talk about it, but you have to go deep, dig deep. If you are like living exactly as efficiently as you possibly can, and you still can't save money. And that becomes what? It's a cash in problem, right? Yeah. Um, and so to your point, you know, I don't want to say to these incredibly hardworking people will go work harder, but this is the cash in problem that you right. have. You, there, you know, there's this, there's the problem with budgeting and the problem with understanding that like, okay, I don't make enough money to support my lifestyle. Then you either Somebody have has to give lifestyle or you yeah. have to money. And I, and I, I don't say that in a judgmental way. I'm just saying like, that's just how math and numbers and money works. Right. Um, so it's really, really hard to save money when you're living this way. So to your point, can you go and do tutoring after school? Can you work mm-hmm. in a school program? Can you, um, you know, get a job in the summer, which helps subsidize the rest of your year? I, you know, I don't know. I'm just using the teacher example. Right, right. Everybody has a different, a different lifestyle and a different you know, answer this question. But, um, I think for young people, for people who are just starting out, there's this, um, you know, well, I have a job and I'm, I'm working hard. I shouldn't have to get a second job or I shouldn't have to, 
And that's fine. If you don't want to get a second job and you don't want to, you know, babysit on a Saturday night and you want to go out with your friends instead, that's cool. But the decision that you've made is to go out with your friends on a Saturday night. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Which is such a, I feel like that's such a 20 something year old decision. That was me. That was me too. When I I work with my dad, I remember six o'clock on the dot when we close it, come on, let's go. Let's go. My friends are waiting for me. I remember. We're such a bunch of idiots. And now like, we stay late. I never rush him. Like we just chill, not chill out, but like we finish what we need to do. And my friends are like, you're late. Like you're always late. And I'm like, tough shit. I just made money. So like, are you going to pay my bills? And then, um, also you were saying like, find something, you know, if you don't want to work on the side, like fine. For me, I saw that John and I have goals and I was like, I'm going to start teaching spin classes. Mm -hmm. And that's what made me start. Cause I was like, Hey, I love spin. So I found something that I was not only passionate about, but would also help me physically. And then I made some money every few weeks. Win, win, win. So I was, yeah. So you brought up debt. Mm. Now let's just say that there is a person listening who's already in debt. Um, I think the two major ones that I hear from people, and I just recently was able to like pay off all of my credit cards and I'm living life debt free, except for this fucking house. Um, (laughs) But it's, but, 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 but. I hate this house. You can't convince me to love it. I mean, I love this house, but. Your mortgage is not bad debt. And there's a difference between right. bad debt. Right. So. And student loans too, right? So I'm, I'm so blessed in that um, I don't, I don't have student loans. Um, but people, I mean, this is like a legit problem. Like my husband has, I don't know, thirty, forty thousand $40,000 in student loans. And that's nothing. You know, my brother has over $100,000 of student oh. loans. Like when you're an engineer, you know what I mean? Like, so I guess my question is, with debt, any kind of debt, um, my brother is super, super smart, and he's kind of the inspiration behind this question. His interest rates are lower than something. So he actually has enough money to pay off his student loans in full, but isn't because he's making more money with his money like invested or something like that. So that's, you know, that's the idea where... Um, if you can make more money in the market, right. Or you can make more money return an investment of some kind of yours. Does it make more sense to keep your money? I mean, it does, right? So if you have a three or 4% interest rate for your student loans, but you have, you can take that money and go make 6% or somewhere else, you would do that, right? Because you would want to, your, your interest on your investment is exceeding the interest that you're paying out. Right. Right. But that's only typically the case for things like student loans that are that low interest. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's generally never going to be the case with credit cards, right? So when I do my like money one hundred and one talk, I always start the every talk starts with the idea of compound interest. And mm. oh, I remember this from Girlboss Rally. You remember this, right? <laughs> um, and this is where like I get real nerdy real quick. But Teach me. Um, compound interest is you know what uh, it's I call it magic math. Um, Einstein called it like the eighth wonder of the world, right? So it's, it's this idea that um, I, I need a loan. I call you guys up. I'm like, hey, ladies, can you give me a thousand bucks? You give me a thousand bucks. And then you say, okay, you have 10% interest and you have to pay me back in a year. Great. A year later, I'm like, Eek, I don't have the money. Um, so what should I do? And you're like, well, you know what, Kristen, you can keep the loan for an extra year, but you're going to, um, that interest is going to be compounded. So instead of you paying me back a thousand dollars of principal plus the interest you owe me, you're actually going to pay me back the $1,000 
plus the $100, which has been added onto your principal. So now you're paying me interest for the next year on $1,100. Mm. Okay. And at the end of the second year, I still don't have the money. And you're like, okay, compounding again. Okay, great. So that now at the beginning of the third year, I'm paying interest on, on $1,210, which is the original principal plus the two years of, of, of interest, right? And this, and this goes on and so forth. And so, and, 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 and it continues to, to grow and grow and grow. That is compound interest. That's an annual example of compound mm-hmm. interest. Um, most interest when it comes to our debt is, um, is, you know, when we're talking about like credit cards or student loans is not compounded annually. It is compounded daily. So the idea, oh. yeah. So the idea is that you're not paying a 10% per day, right? You're taking that 10%, you're dividing it by 365 days. So you're tiny, talking a teeny, teeny, tiny amount of interest is being paid per day. And then that tiny little amount of interest that you paid for that day gets added onto your principal. Mm. And it accumulates mm. throughout the year, right? So if you're paying a credit card and your credit card has a 20% APR, then you can imagine how quickly your debt can accumulate. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Okay. So that's credit card debt. When you're talking about student debt, if you have done a good job of monitoring your student loans, understanding what your rates are, making sure you have the lowest rate possible, then generally speaking, you can pay a lower, much lower rate, less than 4%, 4, you know, 4 3 2%, whatever that looks like. And you can take your cash and you can invest it and, and you can ideally make more in, in a market. If you, you can't do that with a credit card because if you know an investment where you can get 25% guaranteed, please let me know. I would like to sell yeah. that to everyone. <laughs> okay. So, so what you have to do is you, you can't, you, you're, there's no way to beat the credit card game, which yeah. is why I hate credit cards so much. So you ideally in a perfect world, if you have student loan and credit card debt, you want to pay your credit card debt first because the rates are higher. Now, if you're your brother and you've got a hundred grand of, of loans, I still don't feel comfortable with that much debt. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, it's going to impact you at some point in your life. Yeah. Buy a home. Um, if you want to start a business, they're going to look at your level of debt. Um, and they're going, it's going to be a strike against you, right? So if you can mitigate your debt as much as possible, even if it means you're paying a low interest rate, it makes me happy to know that you can lower your debt. You don't have to pay them all off. You just have to put it, put it in a way that's very comfortable to you and that your yeah. student and that your monthly payment isn't outrageous. Um, student loans um, are kind of, in my opinion, designed to be tricky. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand them. This is actually a bigger conversation about debt in general. I don't think people understand debt. I don't, they clearly don't understand compound interest. And so, totally. yeah, so that's kind of the main underlying um, fundamental of, of understanding debt. But <clears throat> if you can think about... Um, you know, how to structure your debt in a way that it's comfortable for you to pay off and that it's not really impacting your life. Great. If you're drowning in it, then you need to kind of take the next steps. Right. Understand it better. You can consolidate your student loans. A lot of these um, companies now are, you know, companies like SoFi, right? That's one of their cash cow businesses is they want you to take your three student loans and consolidate them and get a better rate, right? Yeah, that was going to be my question about credit card debt because that's how we ended up paying it off because we were able to get a consolidation loan that was 
lower interest. Yes. Um, and then we paid that off instead. But I'm like wondering like how often that's actually the case. Like is that I get like Instagram ads and shit for like all of these different um companies that are offering personal loans. That's what it's called, right? It's a personal loan. Yeah. So what had the way it works, the mechanism is that you go to an institution, you say, okay, I have twenty thousand dollars in credit card debt and I'm paying twenty-four percent APR. I go to a loan, I go to a bank or some kind of institution that's gonna lend me twenty percent. They're gonna charge me eight percent for per year. And I take that twenty thousand dollars, I go pay off my credit card with it, I wipe out my credit card debt. I wiped out my 24% interest and now I have a personal loan mm. that I'm going to pay off at 8% interest or whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, right. So it drastically reduces the interest that you have to pay each year and it's a much healthier, cleaner way to pay off your bills. Right. But here's the thing. Uh, you have to stop using your credit right, card. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you know people see I'm it wiped sure, out and then they're I'm like, sure, yeah. and then they just go start all over again, again and it's just digging themselves deep. I get a lot. It drives me crazy. Um, and because, by the way, there's very few things that are as gratifying as paying off your credit card. And then as soon as somebody starts using it again, like, no, I feel like I got cheated on. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you like, it's hard not to take it personally. I mean, I feel like that goes for a lot of people that yep. essentially yep. give advice as a profession. When people don't heed your advice, you right. want to kick them in the kneecap. Yep. Right. Exactly. Um, I have some questions. I want to make sure that we get through everything. Um, so I want to talk about investing. Yes. Great. Um. So let's just say you're like in a good place. You have your minimal to no debt you bought your house, you have your nest egg emergency fund, whatever the fuck, and you have some extra money on the side. Like for me, this is a selfish question because I have money to invest, but I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest. And I feel like a lot of CFAs are like, I'm only going to manage a yeah, portfolio of a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. And I'm like, maybe I have a few hundred thousand dollars, but maybe I don't want to give you everything right. I have. Right. So how, so what are some like resources that you, I guess like one, is that the time to start? That's my dog. <laughs> is that the time to start investing? Right. And if so, what are the next steps for somebody who's really not um, educated around it? Yeah. So I will say that this is the, probably the number one question I get from people in around the ages of like 30 and 40. I'm sure. Um, because this, everybody kind of knows the, well, not everybody, but most people generally know the framework, right? I have, I, I call these my buckets. I have three buckets of my liquid assets. My first little bucket is my cash. That's mm -hmm. my emergency money. That's my, you know, my cash that makes me sleep at night. It's the money we use to repay our bills, blah, blah, blah. Then you have your right-hand bucket, which is your, what we call our, your, in our business, qualified money, right? Qualified is your meaning, um, has some kind of tax advantaged um, expression that the IRS has allowed us, right? So that's your, I, that's your IRAs and your 401ks. Yeah, I want to talk about those too. Great. And we all kind of have a handle on those, right? We know they exist. We know why we should be using them. We know kind of sort of the frameworks for them. This middle bucket, to your point, is what I call your non-qualified or your uh, taxable investment bucket. And this is what people will use 
for life's liquidity, right? This is the kind of thing that you're, you know, maybe you use to upgrade to a second, you know, to a new home in a few years, or this is the money you use to buy a boat that you want to buy or the Ferrari you want to buy, or in my case, the Sharon Stone Mercedes that you drive. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of different uses for this money, but people don't know what to, where to start. So what I suggest is depending on how much it is, just don't let it sit in cash because that is um, what we call purchasing power erosion, right? So if you keep your money in cash and you don't earn anything on it because banks won't really pay you for cash these days. So you earn maybe 25 basis points, 0.25%. And inflation, it goes up about 2% a year. You are actually casually losing money by keeping your money in cash. So we know that's a bad idea. So then you kind of need to figure out what the next step is, where to go, who to talk to. If you have, you know, 10, 15, 50 grand, and you are otherwise pretty sorted in your life, you probably don't need a financial advisor. What I think that you probably should think about in general, though, is kind of what your overarching goals are in the next three to five years, and if it makes sense to start thinking about a financial advisor. And there's a lot of really interesting um, options these days for kind of this middle of the road, right? This, I don't have a million dollars, but I have, you know, a hundred grand that I want to do something with. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's there's a lot of these online um, platforms these days that you could start using. Um, you know, I, I, I'm always a little bit careful about, you know, just throwing out names of platforms um, just because clearly I work <laughs> at a financial institution of our own. So it's always a little strange for me to be, you know, telling people to use other financial um, platforms, but there's so many good ones out there. And there's women, there's ones that focus specifically on women. Um, there's ones that focus, you know, on, you know, just in general, like a betterment or wealth front. Those are kind of, um, agnostic towards sex. Um, you know, Elvis. I have a wealth front account and I'm, I'm yeah. failing to see how it's any different than a high interest savings account. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because my American Express savings account gives me 2% interest and so does Wealthfront. But doesn't Wealthfront offer a bunch of investment options? I have, I literally, this is the problem. I opened an account, I put some money in it and I don't know. Okay. Okay. Um, And I think some of them are better at others than kind of like walking you through the process. Um, some of my some clients people are also better at retaining information than I am though. Well, perhaps, <laughs> but also I think sometimes they, I think these sites can be overwhelming. I think yeah, they can, for sure. there's a lot of, you know, things and jargon. And especially when it comes to like picking investments, like a betterment will walk you through your like risk tolerance and kind of guide you and put you into a specific bucket. So we'll, so we'll Elvest. Um, then there's kind of like the next level of kind of financial service firms that are um, stash wealth. I don't know if you've ever heard of stash wealth. They're kind of like what they, they call, they target what they call Henry's high earners, not rich yet. And that's an idea, <laughs> right? Which is the idea like, I don't have, you know, half a million dollars to invest, but I need help on all those different things in my life. Um, but there's people like me and, you know, my brother works with us too. My, you know, we will work with you if you need the help and we'll figure out a way to do it. Right. We, yeah. You know, my, my view is that I generally try not to, unless I'm just completely at capacity, I, I try not to turn anybody away who genuinely needs and wants help. Um, and 
by the way, I think that we're the exception to the rule on that. I don't think you could just like go knock on any financial advisor's door. Yeah, there need to say, be I have people 10 like you. Grand, what can you do? But um, I, I think that it, seeking out financial advice early on is a really important way to um, accumulate wealth down the line. Right. Yeah. yeah. Don't be afraid to look for help. Yeah. Are there any like books or resources that you would? Um suggest? Um, there's, there's a, a, I mean, you could get completely overwhelmed at like a Barnes and Noble with all the kind of books that you can read on this kind of thing. I personally have never read anything that's like blown me away. Um, (laughs) I think that it depends on how you learn. So that's actually a really important point, right? right? If you're a book learner, if you're somebody who really can learn by reading a book, then go to Barnes & Noble and pick up the book that speaks to you. Um, if you are a somebody who needs to be taught, then go to a place, high, you know, there's another place called Financial Gym. I don't know if you've heard about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Financial Gym is also kind of like, you're starting out, you need a little help, you can go in whenever you need help and get, if that's the type of way that you respond, um, to learning than that, you know, you need one-on-one go there. Uh, there's tons of resources these days in terms of seminars, um, summits, conferences, that kind of thing where you can learn this kind of stuff. Um, also follow me. I do a bunch of this stuff. I do a yeah, bunch of the girl who saves money. The girl who saves money. Um, yeah, I do a lot of these talks. I do, I have a ton of writing that I've done too, that kind of cover a lot of different areas um, of, yeah, you've of, been featured in so many um, prestigious financial platforms. Um, Forbes, where else? Forbes is kind of where I where I my live. My my blog is there, so you could always go to Forbes um, and look. We'll for, link them in the show notes. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Also, our website has all my stuff too. So if you go to okeyfinancialpartners.com, you will find a lot of my a lot of my writing there. Um, I've you know, I do the Today Show pretty frequently, which of course is not writing, but um, there's video clips that help. Um, so, I, you know, I, I I try to cover a lot of stuff in my writing, and I'm, it's pretty good. I, I think I think I've covered a ton of topics. So, if you need specific resources, start there. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I really want to talk about before we get into a couple of listener questions, which we may have already touched on, touched on. Um, is retirement. Like, I feel like yeah. I'm in my mid thirties. <laughs> <laughs> I have like, okay, 401k. What is the difference between a 401k, a Roth IRA, a traditional IRA? How, how, like, should I be maxing it out? What if my employer doesn't match? Like what, what? Like, okay. Good, good, good question. And something everyone needs to know. So a 401k or a 403b, if you work in maybe the public sector, if you're a school teacher or you work at a hospital, the 401k and the 403b are essentially the same thing. And they are an employer sponsored plan. So your employer creates the plan for you and allows you to make contributions and the contributions are pre-tax dollars. So if you are under the age of 50, you can make currently in 2019 a $19,000 pre-tax contribution. Uh, If you're over the age of 50, you can do $24,000. So what that means is if you make make $119,000 a year, 
and you max out your 401k, you only pay taxes on a hundred grand a year. Make sense? Yes. So you can automatically understand why pre-tax contributions are a really big deal. But do you pay tax on um, the, like, when do you pay tax when you withdraw it? Yeah. You see, the money goes in and it goes into this 401k, which lives with your employer while you're, while you work there and it grows tax deferred. I'll get there. So it grows tax deferred. And then when you go to take the money out, which is where you're allowed to start taking money out when you're 59 and a half without a penalty. And you have to start taking the money out at 70 and a half, which is called a required mandatory distribution. When you start withdrawing the money from your 401k, that's when you will pay the taxes and your taxes will be considered an ordinary income. Meaning, um, you know, if you have to take a mandatory distribution of $30,000 when you're at 70 and a half, then that $30,000 is considered income and you get taxed on that. Got it? Yes. Um, but then also with a 401k, it's essentially like investing in a mutual fund. Is it not like you're earning interest? Yeah. So that is, that is determined by your employer. Your, mm. your, whoever your employer hires to be the administrator of the 401k is who gives you options of what you should invest in. Okay. So maybe they offer, I don't know, 20 mutual funds that you can choose from or 20 ETFs that you can choose from for somebody who's younger they should be trying to design themselves a growth-seeking portfolio, meaning a portfolio that is mostly made up of stocks as opposed to bonds. Mm. Because if you are 25, even 35, even 45, you're not going to touch this money until 20, maybe 30 years from now, right? Would that be considered aggressive? That's aggressive, right? So you, so have, you this, have time for it to be volatile. It's incredibly long time horizon. So you could be relatively agnostic about what happens in the market from day to day, and you really care about the overarching trend that's mm-hmm. going to inevitably go higher over time. So you want to make sure that you're um, pretty aggressively invested if you're younger. As you get older, you want to make sure you start to balance that portfolio right. out a little bit, right? Um, so that's a 401k or a 403b. Now, if you leave your job and um, you do not want your 401k money managed by your former employer's administrator anymore, you have the ability to take that 401k money and roll it into a traditional IRA. Okay, it's called an IRA rollover. It's a tax, it's not a taxable event, meaning the 401k administrator cashes you out, sends you a check, you take that cash and you put it right into an IRA no taxable event. And then once it hits the IRA, then you can choose on your own or with your advisor what your uh, investment options are going to be. In addition to it acting as kind of a gatekeeper for all your former 401ks, you can make annual contributions to a traditional IRA to up to $6,000 a year if you are under the age of 50. You can do $7,000 a year if you're above Yeah. I mean, if you start doing it when you're 25, it's actually, it's actually remarkable how much it can add up to be when you're 65 years old, 40. It's like, I've done the math. If you do like $6,000 a year for 40 years, even like a 7% or 8% rated return, it's well over half a million dollars. Mm. Um, so that's what a traditional IRA is. Everyone can have a traditional IRA, assuming you have income. Okay. Everyone can have one. 
The trick with the traditional IRA is that you don't always get the tax deduction when you make the contribution because if you make over a certain threshold of money and a certain income level of money, you do not, you do not qualify for the tax deduction. Okay, mm -hmm. so that is a traditional IRA. Generally speaking, we probably are all going to have one at some point in the game because you've probably had a place where you've worked with 401k and you're, you create this IRA as kind of, like I said, a catch-all for all your 401ks. I always recommend trying to achieve a $6,000 contribution. Now, let me explain what a Roth is. So as I said, the 401k um, and the traditional IRA, you can potentially get a tax deduction on the way in, right? Make 401k contribution, that is a tax deduction too. A Roth acts like almost the exact opposite in that you do not get a tax deduction when you make Roth contributions. However, the money goes in and it grows and it grows and it grows, and you never pay taxes on the withdrawals. So when you're an old lady, you don't have to pay any taxes when you're taking your money out of a Roth. Mm. That's the taxable advantage to the Roth. Now, why don't we all have Roths, and why yeah, don't that we was, have Yeah, why not? going to be my next question. Because there's, there's uh, income level. Uh, maxes. So once you start making, and I always, I, I always have to double check these numbers, but I believe if you're single, if you're filing single, your max is $132,000. So if you make above $132,000, you can't make Roth contributions anymore. I believe it's like 192 or something random if you're married. So if you're married and you make above 192, you can no longer make Roth contributions. Mm. The young people who are starting out should have a Roth because you have this ability to max your Roth for as long as possible until you can no longer make those contributions. Right. Yeah. Roths so are if you're self-employed, you do a traditional IRA? So if you're self-employed and meaning that you are, most of your income is derived from 1099 income. So you're a contractor, you're a freelancer, if you have your own business, um, you can, con can make contributions to something called a SEP, Simple Employer Plan. A SEP IRA. SEP IRAs are fantastic if you're on a, if you're if you're self-employed because you can make up to a fifty-six thousand dollar contribution Whoa. or twenty percent of your adjusted gross income, whichever is less. Okay. Can you so, have a SEP if you're not self-employed? No. Oh. You have to have ten ninety-nine income. So this is income. You have you're a W two employee, right? So if you work at a company and you, you know, make your salary happy days, but then you decide to be a spin instructor on the side and you get paid 1099 income, That's what I you do. can actually create a set with that income, right? So this is great for people who have W2 jobs, but also maybe are like freelancers and make, I don't know, 30, 40 grand doing freelance work each year. They can actually take a chunk of their money, 20% of their 1099 income and put it towards a set. And the beauty of the SEP is that that money is a tax deduction. So the contributions are a tax deduction. So think about this for a second. You make um, half a million dollars a year and you're self-employed. Uh, you can max that SEP at $56,000. You get a $56,000 tax deduction and you are able to put that much money away in a vehicle that is going to grow for you tax deferred over however many years. Yeah. 
And let's think about compound interest for a second. If you think about how compound interest works and you're not paying taxes on that, on that growth, you can think about how much money you can actually make over a certain, yeah. like with just even one contribution. Right. I so if, if you have a 401k through your um, employer, like I do, would you recommend also having a IRA? Yeah, I would. If you can afford it, if you can afford to do $19,000 to your 401k and $6,000 to your IRA, I absolutely I want to retire like a multimillionaire. Well, here's the thing. If you do a, if you do a traditional or a Roth, plus you do some kind of 401k, um, you can do it. You will retire. I'm going to do it. I love money so much. (laughs) Wait, there was was one thing though that you said, and I want to just comment. Even if your employer does not match, I still want everyone to make it. Still max it out. Exactly. Or as much as you can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Awesome. That was like, I think our listener questions, we've, I'm yeah, reading we've them now. Them. We've covered all of them. Um, is there anything that you feel like we missed? Everything. <laughs> She's like, I, yeah. no, I, I actually I think, I think we covered so much. I think we covered so much in such a, in such a like well-rounded way. I think there's always more to dig deeper on. I think like my parting words here are, it is as it, it, what is the simple, not easy that term? Um, so much of what managing your own money is 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 simple, not easy. Mm, um, and, totally. and being honest with yourself, yeah. And, and being honest with yourself, stepping on the scale, like I like to say. Um, Again, simple, not easy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think so much of it is is just kind of being able to see the long game, which is. Um, you, you have to kind of be goal oriented when you're yeah. about your money and you have to kind of think about what it would feel like to be wealthy and rich down the road. And I want everyone to be rich and people who are rich don't spend all their money. That's right. Yeah. And that's like with anything you want to set a goal and then just show up every day for yourself and like stay accountable and then be consistent like with anything else so that you can finally get there. Cause I think the biggest problem is that people are like, I want to make a lot of money. Right now. Right now. Well, yeah. How do I do it right totally. now? Yeah. And, and so I think everybody has to practice their patience. The instant gratification thing is really, really important, right? It's become a real problem for kind of us in general because yeah. it's like, I'm on a random new thing from Amazon hit button and it arrives next day, oh right? God, like, yes. Everything Amazon. is so easy to get. Everything is so quick to get. Um, but like one of the things that I've been focusing on in my own house and especially with my kids is just the idea of sustainability. The idea that like, we don't need more stuff. We don't need more clothes. We don't need more toys. And kind of tie in sustainability a little bit with the idea of spending less money. It's kind of fun because you're doing things really well. So you're saving the earth and you're spending less money. Absolutely. That's kind of my parting, parting thought. Well, our Dexter is thrilled right now to be a can part of, see, can you see him asked like, out on the desk? <sighs> he's just like snoring in our face. I wonder if the microphone's going to pick that well, up. That's because he's already retired. He doesn't have to he's worry like, about anything. I don't things. pay bills, child. <laughs> um, Let me see. Can you see this picture on here? Yeah. Oh. His singular face. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> so we like, I don't know if you're familiar with Vogue 73 questions. Yeah. 
Um, so we like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna ask you 73 questions, but we are gonna ask you five like rapid fire random questions. It was Ooh. just inspired. Yeah, by don't think. So this is how we end every episode with the yeah. first question. Are you ready? That's not the first question. Okay, this is the actual first question. What's the best thing that's happened to you this month? I got booked on the Today Show for December 2nd. Yes. Shameless. What time? Uh, I'm going to be on the Hoda and Jenna hours at 10 a.m. Oh, awesome. Stay tuned. We'll be tuned in. Uh, What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Coffee. (laughs) Ooh, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Speaking all the languages. Ooh, that's a good one. That is a good one. What's your guilty pleasure? Sleeping. (laughs) And finally, what is your vibe? Really, really with the zinger on the end, huh? What is my vibe? Um, I think my vibe is pretty high energy, but I like to exude the vibe of kind of just like give me a hug and be honest with me, and we'll be cool as long as we're like honest and happy and and just be cool. Be cool. Is my I love vibe. that. Be cool. That's it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, tell everyone where to find you. Yeah, so um, you can find me on Instagram, uh, the, the girl who saves money. Uh, you can find uh, me at kristenmerrick.co, um, which is my press page. You could find me at our website for the business, which is um, o'keefefinancialpartners.com. And O'Keefe is two E's, two F's, and me. Um, and you can find me on the Today Show on December 2nd. <laughs> Yay! Thank you so much. This was so nice.